Dave, here we are. My favorite time of the week. Here we are. Working Man's Pod. Today, we are zooming ahead in time, moving from 1969 to 1990, to discuss The Grateful Dead's show on July 12th, 1990 at RFK Stadium. Just a brief 21 years after the last show that we discussed, and a completely different band. I mean, I said that last time too. It was like, this is a different band than the one that we last heard six months ago in 68. But now it's like, whoa, what the hell? This is, if you heard, and actually I did this to prove, not to prove a point, but last night I was listening to um, uh, The Music Never Stopped from this show with my wife. And I was like, listen to how cool this is, like this synth sound on this song. And like, like listen to basically Jerry playing the flute on this solo. And she was like, yeah, that does sound cool. And then I was like, do you want to hear the last show that, that Dave and I talked about? And I went back to the alligator from 69 and was just like, can you imagine that this is the same <laughs> group of people? Like, it's just crazy. It could not be more different. Did you hear that? No. Th- that was the sound of dozens of hearts breaking, finding out that you had a wife and are <laughs> off the table. <laughs> uh, I don't know about all that, but um, the those broken hearts in regards to my wife um might just continue on into this next segment which i mean let's dive right into the days between Ooh. there were days there So my days between involves the, my aforementioned wife, um, who I would describe her as not a deadhead, but a good sport. She, I uh, came to a dead and coast show with you and I last summer, which was nice. And she, she doesn't give me any shit about the amount of grateful dead I listen to, <laughs> or if it we're does, in the car and that's what I want to listen to. She's not usually, um, she doesn't usually say like, let's put on something else. It doesn't help that you kind of discovered the Grateful Dead right before the pandemic hit. And so for two years, she's been trapped in the same house with you, like unable to get away from <laughs> the dead constantly playing in the background. Uh, that's true. Or the foreground. I mean, it depends on the situation. <laughs> um, but so anyway, she and I went to uh, we were at a play um, a few weeks ago. And when we were in the like parking deck getting out, there was a song that she had wanted to play. And when we were like just arriving, she was like, Oh, I want to, I want you to, to hear this song. So like put it on your cue so that it starts when we come out. And I was like, okay, got it. So we get done with that. And she asked me if I have any song requests and I requested cats under the stars off of a live Jerry Garcia band album. It had been stuck in my head all day and I just wanted to hear it. But in addition to that, I don't think that that's a song that she dislikes I, fig- I figured it was like a decent middle ground. So it's the one off of volume four of uh, Jerry Garcia Band Live, if, if any of our listeners want to find the exact one. And we got about a minute into it, and Donna came on in the supporting vocals. And I saw out of the corner of my eye Jane's head look at the like screen. And like she looked at, we are one minute in to a 10-minute song. And Jane turned to me and said, there is no fucking way we're listening to 10 minutes of this song. <laughs> um, to which I said, whoa, that is, that's aggressive. Why not? And she said, because I just heard Donna and I can't stand her. Oh, no. Uh, a hot take. I mean, not necessarily that not hot really of a take. Not really a hot take. 
Jane's yeah. Jane's far from alone in that, but I had no idea that I was living with a Donna hater all these years. So, I mean, that was kind of a, a moment that in the days between that really just caught me off guard and, and kind of shook me. Oh, man. Yeah. So that's uh, that's my days between is uh, learning that my 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 beloved wife uh, is a not a Donahead. Bummer. I don't really have a I have like two half stories. I don't really have a good days between story. I was in Park City last week and there was a trail called daydream and so going down the whole trail sugar magnolia was stuck in my head (laughs) and then there was a chairlift called daybreak and so going up the chair uncle john's band was playing in my head and then back on the way down the other little half story is that when i went out my girlfriend's friend flew in and she's a music therapist, which I didn't oh. know was a job. I thought that was pretty cool. And so she, as soon as she introduced herself and told me what she did, I was like, you got to ask her about the Grateful Dead. But I, I was like, all right, don't be weird about it. <laughs> so I had a little conversation with her. I was like, oh, how does that work? What exactly do you do? Um, and after like two or three minutes, I was like, you ever, um, you ever like get requests to play the Grateful Dead? She's like, immediately, she's like, no, we don't really do a lot of dead. She's like, we do a lot of eagles. I was like, okay, I, I guess that makes sense. Um, and then I asked her, what's the weirdest like music request you've ever had? And she said that this like 95-year-old guy on his deathbed wanted a Kelly Clarkson, Britney Spears mashup to play him out to his grave. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and so she had to mash up like Baby One More Time with um, Since You've Been Gone and like... <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. That is a cool job, though. You're right. That's that's not something you hear about every day. Would have been cooler if there was a dead connection, but... It would have been, but you know what? I mean, that just goes to show that, um, you know, we're not just trying to make things up for this segment. This is this is true life. Yeah. I do want to correct a point because I can hear our audience members um, yelling at their recording devices. You said Daybreak made you think of Uncle John's band. You meant playing in the band. Yes, that is absolutely correct. <laughs> I um, it's not quite as egregious as every time I say song and mean show or vice versa, which is about 50 <laughs> times an episode. Um, apologies again. But I did want to correct it while um, before we got off this train of thought. So, yeah, you know, not the most exciting uh, days between, but an honest yeah, days between it is what it is. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's start the show. Thursday, July 12th, 1990 at RFK Stadium is the show that we are talking about today. So to if you didn't listen to the last episode, the, the way that we got onto this episode as the one to discuss next, we wanted to do a Brent era show, and I happened to see the video of the Box of Rain from this show, which is a favorite song of mine that doesn't... It's it's a unique Grateful Dead song in that it's a favorite of mine that I don't really get too excited about when I hear it live. The uh, the album version is perfect and the live recordings are it's not a song that I feel like they took further than the recording 
in their live show. They play it pretty true to the live recording with the crucial difference being that Phil's voice doesn't usually sound as good as it did on the album. And so it it's not something that I usually love live. And so when I heard a version from 1990 where Phil's voice sounded as good as it does on this version, I was like, let's explore this show a bit more if we're going to pick a Brent show. So that's how we stumbled upon this one. And I'm, I'm glad that we did. Um, this show again, RFK stadium in Washington, DC, it, you know, July 12th, heart of the summer in DC, the show started at 5 PM opened by Edie Brickell and new Bohemians. They were a few years removed from their big hit, which is what I am. Edie and uh, new Bohemians opened for the dead a few times around this time period. The dead's opener, the show before in my neck of the woods, Raleigh, North Carolina, was Bruce Hornsby. So uh, kind of some foreshadowing for a man who would later join the band just a few months later, which I think is kind of cool. So do you know the song, What I Am? I do. I know that. Um, I know that chorus part. Yeah. It's a good song. Yeah. No, it's catchy. Edie, I don't know exactly where she's from, but she has some sort of a Bay Area connection because she there are some recordings you can find on YouTube of her, David Crosby, and Jerry um, just like playing around together in the studio. So I think that she, that's cool. Yeah. I think that she was like a friend of the band in one way or another. There's also a video of her performing in, I think 93 on an encore with the dead on stage. So she had a musical involvement with them for a number of years, um, whether it was opening for them appearing with, like I said, Jerry in, in studio recordings or just kind of collaborating in one way or another, in one way or another, which is pretty cool. The show started at five with Hurt, with Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians, and then The Dead allegedly hit the stage around 6.30 or 7, as best I can tell. The band at this time included Brent Midland. This is the first show that we have discussed that involves Brent. And tragically, this show was just two weeks to the day before his death, his untimely death at 37 years old. Another important member of the band at this time was Bob Braylove, who was helping as a third musician on Drums in Space and providing sound engineering really throughout the show. He was just on Tales from the Golden Road, which is a great show on Sirius, the Sirius Grateful Dead channel every Sunday. And it was interesting. They talked to him a lot about his work on MIDI with the Dead and his work on the album Infrared Roses, which was the Grateful Dead's last album. It actually did not live on streaming services until a few months ago. Now it does. It's an album that is composed of drum space sections of their concerts. So there's no singing. It's a full album of drums in space, but that they engineered to to make like independent songs, which is kind of cool. Interesting and trippy listen. But he was on he was on Tales from the Golden Road, and I wrote down a couple notes because I thought that they were, I thought that they were interesting. He said that he described MIDI musical instrument digital interface, if you are not familiar, as a digital bus that allows all of the synthesizers to talk to each other. So if you can get your instrument on the bus, you can access all of those synthesized sounds. And um, he said that the way that the Dead used MIDI at this time is really great evidence of how good their road crew was because they didn't have very high-speed computing power at this time period. And so to be able to run MIDI and play it, to play lossless audio live through amps was apparently an, a massive challenge and something that I guess, according to him, bands still struggle with now. But the Dead's road crew and you know live people were just so good that they were able to do it, which is amazing. 
Brent Midland, of course, was on the keys uh, for this show, the other new member of the band, just to kind of give a quick intro to him for those who are, for some reason, unfamiliar. He was formerly of the band Silver. They were famous for their single Wham Bam, which is in um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, if you're a younger listener, during kind of the climactic fight scene at the end of the movie. And then he was also in Bobby and the Midnights with Bob Weir. He began playing with Bob in 1978 and then joined the Grateful Dead in earnest in 1979 after Keith left the band. He, his background as a musician, he was a classically trained pianist and trumpet player as a kid. And then once he got into high school, he became more of a rock pianist, got involved in the L.A. and later Bay Area music scenes throughout the early mid-70s, and that was in a number of bands culminating with his role with the dead, which is certainly what he's best known for. So like I said, summer 1990, that's where we are in time. Interesting and weird time in music history. I, I guess one thing that this show, Working Man's Pod, is making me realize is that pretty much every year that we've talked about, the when I look at like the top 10 songs of the moment or the year, it's never just one genre. And I think that in hindsight, it's easy to reduce any time period to like, you know, early 90s grunge, um, for example. But it's never that easy. It's always so much more complicated than that. No, because the number one song of 1990, I think, is Sinead O'Connor, right? It's That's one of the top 10 songs. It's not the number one song. Um, As I learned, the number one song is Step by Step by New Kids on the Block, Mm. which is weird nice yeah so some early 90s boy band vibes but the top 10 songs of the year is just super eclectic uh you have can't touch this by mc hammer so the first time rap has really been talked about hip-hop has been talked about on our show yeah you have enjoy the silence by depeche mode probably the song on the top 10 that's the most similar to this album in that they have some weird and cool synthesizer sounds and it's also just a lot like the grateful dead it's such a full and layered sound which is kind of cool that is off their album that was released in um early 90 it also included personal jesus which is probably their biggest hit i think but also Poison by Belle DeVoe was a top song of this year. Ice Ice Baby. So really kind of all over the map musically, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty cool. The top album this week in time was MC Hammer, Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him. <laughs> week five of 21 <laughs> that it was on at the top of the charts throughout 1990. And it, it was the best selling record of the year. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that that was a massive, massive song. Right. Here, here's an interesting one for you, Dave. Listen to these debut albums that came out in this time period. So in April, Green Day's debut album came out. Nice. Um, Mariah Carey's debut album came out in May. Whoa. And then the other interesting debut album that I thought was of note is Uncle Tupelo, which is the predecessor of Wilco, Jeff Tweedy's band before he was Wilco. Oh, very interesting. And I think that it was a four-piece band and it was him and two other guys who would end up being Wilco. So really, really the predecessor. So kind of cool. You got, um, not necessarily, I guess Mariah Carey, I would have known overlapped with the dead, but probably, I don't know if I would have thought the other two and let alone for so much of their, I mean, the dead still had six years of playing left at this point or five full years. So I thought that was kind of cool. The dead, um, this year were, 
I would describe this year as the middle of their late period touring peak. It's not the 150 shows a year that they were on in 69, but they did play 74 shows in 1990, and Jerry played another 50 with the Jerry Garcia Band or as a solo billing throughout 1990. Much like 1969, they were all over the place, including a brief tour in Europe in October, and then it I think the last show was on November 1st. So a busy year for sure. This was also the year that Built to Last was released. Or excuse me, this was the year after Built to Last was released. So that's the newest album that they had out at this point. Three songs from that album were played during this show. So it's still, you know, a big part of their set lists. And this this show is also four months before Without a Net would be released. That's a live album recorded between October and April of 89 and 90 and a fantastic live record. I really like that that one, uh, much like Live Dead, they structured it so that it sounds like a dead show. Like the order of the songs, the order that the songs appear, and even though they're from six months apart sometimes, they proceed in the same progression that they would. They're in like the slots that they would be in the show. It makes it sound really coherent and cohesive, which I think is cool. 1990 has some good coverage among live releases from the dead, uh, mostly via two spring 90 boxes. So two different box sets of concerts from the spring tour of 1990, which many, I think people view as a touring peak. The summer of 1990 has received less coverage and the fall of 1990, almost none. But that kind of makes sense because like I said, Brent died just a couple weeks after this show. So this show, this show specifically was smack in the middle of the summer 90 tour. In June, they did a little mini tour through the West Coast, mainly in Northern California and Oregon. They played eight shows there. It's, it, it's funny. There's uh, an article from the shows in Oregon, which were at Autzen Stadium, about how the University of Oregon, their athletics department was basically bankrupt. They were like $1.5 million in the hole. Remember, Nike was not that big of a company at, yet at this point in 1990. So Phil Knight was not bankrolling them. Oh, okay. Yeah, good point. So they were like deeply in debt. And their uh, sports information director is quoted in this article as being like, well, the first thing we thought of was let's have a Grateful Dead concert because we'll make some money there. And so the athletics department made like half a million dollars <laughs> over two nights or something like that. Um, just hosting the dead, Whoa. which is crazy. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, they were a massive, massive touring act at this point in time. I've got some numbers uh, to support that in just a sec. But yeah, so they did that mini mini tour of the West Coast in June. And then July 4th kicked off their big East Coast or national tour, if, if you will. It began in Bonner Springs, Kansas, then to Louisville, Pittsburgh, Raleigh, D.C. for this show. And then up to Foxborough, Massachusetts for a show at, um, at Foxborough where the Patriots play. And then uh, to Buffalo, New York, a show at Rich Stadium for 67,000 people. Massive show. Then Two Nights in Indy, those were just released last year as Dave's Picks Volume 40. And then Three Nights in Chicago, which would be the three final nights of the Brent Midland era. They're not playing in bowling alleys and fundraiser centers anymore. They're selling out stadiums. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Um and some of these shows, I mean, they were grossing like more than a million dollars in a night, which is crazy. Yeah. 
So RFK Stadium actually is one of those uh, concerts, um, but th- this was really, I mean, truly a multi-purpose stadium. It was opened in 1961 and run by the federal government until 1986. It's located just two miles from the U.S. Capitol building, and it's kind of cool if you look at pictures from like aerial views of the stadium, you can see the Capitol building and the Washington Monument in the distance. It's not that far away, which is kind of cool. It is one of the first stadiums designed and built to host both football and baseball, and it would be the home of both throughout its time as a, as an active arena. I think that you might remember this. I certainly do. When the Nationals relocated from Montreal, this was their original home between 2005 and 2007. The stadium also hosted soccer matches, boxing matches, weirdly a cycling race and an auto race, which is very difficult for me to imagine. Yeah. But those as well, and apparently numerous marathons. So very active venue in D.C. It also hosted the Grateful Dead 15 times, uh, two night stands in 73, 86, and 89, solo shows in 1990 and 91, and then um, more two night stands every year from 92 until their final year in 95. It's kind of remarkable. Four of those shows have have been released, including this one, which was partially released on Views from the Vault Volume 2 with the full show from 91 and then a four-song segment from the second set of this show as a little a little addendum at the end. Other concerts of note, I think you might have been at one of these. I could be wrong, but The Beatles in 1966, Pink Floyd twice, and then on July 4th, 2015, the Foo Fighters played their 20th anniversary show at the stadium. Were you at that? I was not at that. Okay. When did, you saw them in this general area of the country once, didn't you? I saw them in the stadium that VCU, Virginia Commonwealth, shout out, go Rams, <laughs> uh, playing in 2016 or 17. So like very close to that time. But yes, I've seen them in the DC area. And they are, uh, Foo Fighters are a DC band. So it makes sense that they were playing in that stadium. Um, this, this venue holds 56,000 people. The Dead sold it out with 58,575 tickets sold for this night, which is amazing. Before we dive into this night, at RFK Stadium in July 1990, Paul McCartney played the week before the Dead were there. He played July 4th and July 6th, so he had a, two, a two-night special. And then the Dead roll in on July 12th. And then the week later, that number one band from 90, New Kids on the Block, they're in the stadium performing. So this little run in July 1990 was a great time to be a music fan in the D.C. area. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. It truly was. That's very cool. This stadium actually, uh, unfortunately, it's being demolished. Like pretty much as we speak, 2022 is the year. <laughs> like that happening live right now. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, rest in peace to RFK Stadium. I hope that, I mean, that that land is owned by the government still. And I hope that they turn it into a park or something like that. Some DC could always use some more green space. So why not turn the stadium area and um, all of the parking lots around it maybe into some green space for the people of DC? We'll see. So, again, the Dead sold a, a ton of uh, tickets to this show. Their gross was apparently about $1.5 million from this show alone, which is just it's interesting to, to know 
just how much money these guys were making at this time. So there's a story about when Vince Welnick joined the Grateful Dead that he basically was like sheepishly asking about how much money he would make as like the pianist. He was like a struggling musician. So this would have been a month and a half after this. And he was like, so how much money do I make? And they're like a thousand dollars a day. And he was like, okay, so if the tour goes and they're like, no, 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 you make a thousand dollars a day. And he was like, what? (laughs) You make $1,000 per day of the year (laughs) for breathing the air. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, all right, right on. That sounds awesome. So yeah, these guys were doing (laughs) quite well uh, at this time. I mean, famously they had a ton of people to support. Um, and so they, you know, they, they were making good money, but they were also paying a lot of people good money to do what they did. The day of this concert was apparently, I bet you're going to be shocked to hear this, just a hot, humid, terrible day in DC. Wow. Right in the swamp. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so everyone, when you read like comments about people who are at this show, they're all like, Oh, it was so hot. I was dying. (laughs) I was so happy that people were selling shorts in the lot. DC in the summer is it's a it's rough yeah yeah rough stuff but the show begins and apparently the skies opened kind of it kind of cooled the fans off which is good mm. so um apparently also the rain started like right around showtime i actually looked up the historical weather and the high was actually only 89 degrees which is not yeah, but with dc humidity it's probably like it feels like 104 yeah Yeah. that's the thing i i guarantee you it was a hundred percent (laughs) humidity on this day (laughs) so you know it's i mean just a a very hot dc summer day and then the rain starts right around showtime proceeded for a little while and then um it was apparently enough that the the stadium like ground area because it's a football field was just Mm -hmm. a, a mud pit by the end of the show one com one commenter one commenter on dead.net deadhead doug says his main memory from this show is and i quote so much rain that there was a river running down the stairs there are a lot of people who said similar things and apparent there's a very frequent topic of conversation which is edie brickell apparently her stage banter was really weird during this show there were a lot of notes about this and so here's a quote uh, about that Here's Edie's little fable, which everybody got a kick out of. Quote, if I were an ogre and I came across RFK Stadium, I'd look inside and everybody would look like a bunch of different colored jelly beans. Then I'd reach down and eat one of the jelly beans. And then all of the other beans would run around screaming. (laughs) So very odd. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, This commenter then says, this show was the most psychedelic scene that I would ever see. And the weirdness that began with Edie grew throughout the night until it exploded like the thunderheads above and leapt like chain lightning from person to person throughout the stadium. Yeah, when we start talking about set two, that's that's about right. I agree. Uh, <laughs> and this person saying it was the most psychedelic scene that they would ever see, that's another topic of conversation on the forums. Is like For every four comments, there's someone who's like, this was the greatest asset I've ever had at this was at this show. <laughs> so uh, the people were um, were in their bag, as they say, for this concert in 1990. So as I said, the set two pre-drum space portion of this concert was released as part of View from the Vault 2. You can find that on YouTube, but View from the Vault 2 posted by the Grateful Dead channel, does not include this portion of the DVD release. It's only the 1991 show. 
1981 show is interesting. I watched the whole thing while I was preparing for this episode and it's completely different. You know, it has Vince and Bruce Hornsby both playing with the band and the band sounds completely different without Brent. They've got less MIDI going on and the sound is just different. Having two people on the keys obviously makes a big impact. They did play a couple of the same songs. They had the same uh, ending segment to set one in 91 as they did in 1990. But the, the real things that stood out to me, it's a little bit unintuitive moving from 91 to 90. In 1991, Jerry sounds and looks better, I think, than he did at this show in 1990. Now, part of that might be that the camera is way better on the 91 show. Everything looks so much clearer. But... Hmm. Everyone on the stage just in 91 seems to be in better spirits. Honestly, it's it's kind of odd. I couldn't remember from Bill Kreutzmann's book throughout the early 90s. He was kind of in and out of sobriety. He had some personal tragedy that kind of sent him off that track for different periods. But he seems like really clear and with it in the 91 show. Um, and the drumming is better, I think, especially in the 91 show. But it's I don't know. They, they just seem to be happier on the stage in the 91 show, which I thought was kind of interesting. Oh. Jerry also goes from having like not really long hair in 1990 to like very long flowing locks in 91, which was kind of crazy to me. Um, And Bob had a long ponytail in 1990 that's gone in 91. So he was, um, you know, finding his, his aesthetic. In 1990, he's wearing a shirt that says Tamil Pius Chiefs, which is his flag football team that he played for. And um, there's a great documentary there's a great documentary that you can find on YouTube called the faithful that the 49ers video team made. And it's all about different notable 49ers fans. And Bob is apparently a huge 49ers fan. Yeah. He posted a picture of the NFC championship game recently on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. But he he's a 49ers there. guy. Yeah. 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 So th- there's a whole part about how he was like super competitive in this flag football league. He played quarterback and was like, very demanding of his team and they were very competitive but it's kind of funny to see him wearing that shirt for his flag football team on stage at this concert all right so i think we've set the stage about as well as we can shall we dive into the set list let's go let's let the good times roll oh That is where the concert begins with Let the Good Times Roll. The first time we've talked about this show, Dave. The first time we've talked about a lot of these shows. Or, God lot. damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's an Uncle John's band playing in the band situation. Yeah. The first time we've talked about a lot of these songs. That's the word I was looking for. So, yes, the first time we've talked about a lot of these songs. Uh, Let the Good Times Roll is how they open the show. This song was played 47 times by the Grateful Dead. This is the last time with Brent. This song was introduced in 1988. And then from that time in 88 until Brent's death, this was the second most common opener that they played. And um, it was one of the most common openers of 1990 as a year as well. I like this song. Do you like this song? I really like this song as a show opener. What I like about it is that everyone gets involved. Like everybody gets a turn to sing. It's 
it's a good community jam. And I've always thought that this song opening a show is a good axiom, a good parable for like the dead phantom as a whole. Like it's a community coming together to make good music and enjoy good music and and it's it's good vibes. I mean literally it's let the good times roll. It's it's good vibes throughout. So I've always thought this is this is like the most appropriate show opener, I guess, in like the objective view of the Grateful Dead, you know, post 88. Yeah, beautifully said. I, I agree. I think that that's a really good way of looking at it, too. It's also kind of cool the way that they bookended this show with this song, like you said, a turn taking song. And then they end it with this, a, the same thing, a song where everyone gets to take a turn. This, you know, we both like this song, but I, I I do think that this is a good, not great version. Jerry sounds only okay, which is a har- harbinger of things to come. Bob is getting wild with what he's yeah. doing on this song. <laughs> and I mean, I, I'm sometimes like here for Bob just hamming it up. This was like a little bit much for me. I mean, the falsetto on the all night long is just like whoa bob whoa easy fella yeah the the second half of this song it's a little bumpy um yeah bob is one of the reasons why absolutely there i think that there are some good some good moments in this song though for sure and it is a fine version one thing that i like and this becomes a theme throughout the show because it's raining brent does a little ad lib about getting a little wet and the crowd eats it up yeah i heard that and i was gonna guess it rained and then yeah apparently it poured yeah so that's uh that's um i think that's a nice a nice touch from this show opener they go into yet another show opener feels like a stranger which was played 207 times total 97 of which as a show opener (sighs) okay so they start this show with let the good times roll feels like a stranger and then bertha and to me it feels like they open the show three different times because those all three of those songs are openers and i found that to be a bit of an odd set list but then i looked into it and Feels Like a Stranger was most commonly played as a show opener. Like I said, almost half the time was played it was. But the second most common sequence was Let the Good Times Roll into Feels Like a Stranger. So hmm. I guess they did this quite often, but, you know, as it feels like a stranger feels like a show opener because, you know, we have it in our show. Let's get on with the show. Like, yeah, it's a perfect line for the first first song of the show. I, I thought that this was a good version of Feels Like a Stranger. It's in the top 25 of the 200 on Heady version, so the fans like it quite a bit. What do you think about it? I really liked it. I thought this was a great... Like, there's a bumpy start, but then they, the band gets, like, right into it. Bob sounds great. Jerry sounds great. Phil sounds excellent. The keys are electronic echoey but also like warm and upbeat so this this had i think everybody firing on all cylinders and this was a really good feels like a stranger stranger. stranger. 
I also really like this version. I think that Bob's putting some extra stank on his vocals still. Um, that carried over from Let the Good Times Roll. Yeah, but also on his strumming too. He's he's like really attacking it. And the way that him and Brent are working together, like their musical harmony is kind of carrying Jerry along and on the solo. And uh, yeah, stank is a good word. Swagger. He had, he had some swagger going. It's interesting. Bob, I read a Rolling Stone article with him once where he said that the Brent era was the most fun he ever had playing with the Grateful Dead. So I think you can kind of hear some of that coming through in this show, really. You know, the reviews of what condition Brent was in throughout this tour are kind of varied. I know that the last three nights in Chicago, especially, he was in pretty rough shape. And so I think that... um you know, it doesn't seem bad on this show, though. There are no moments where I'm like, this guy's like kind of losing it. Uh, he's pretty good on the keys no, throughout this show. Yeah, he's. I would say he's. I would say Bob is the most locked in, and he's probably the second most locked in in this particular show. One thing that I think is interesting about this song is that there are really long tuning breaks, both before and afterward, and I think that that's to adjust the MIDI interface. Especially afterward, because they got to go from the like kind of echoey electronic piano to the organ for Bertha. Mm-hmm. Definitely afterward. And and the one, this tuning in between Stranger and Bertha, it was kind of speed bump. Like they were going and then they had to stop and slow down and adjust and get back into Bertha. It would have been cooler if they could have done that a little quicker to, to like keep this momentum rolling. There is a silver lining though, which is that they play funiculi funicula during that tuning break between which i think is fun and it allows me to uh, tell you this fantastic story that i read in a very small uh not well distributed grateful dead book (laughs) so this book is called cornell 77 and some people i'm sure have read it there was a box set from may 77 that was released with a copy of this book but um, it's not like a Harper Collins book that was widely distributed because it's much like our show, very niche. If you want to know everything about Cornell 77, go get this book. I think it's by Peter Connors, if I remember correctly, and it's quite good. But one of the great stories in it was when the dead were warming up for the famous Cornell 77 show, the people who had like put on that show were from the Cornell student body. Like they they were the ones who had kind of organized it. And so they're getting like, you know, they're on stage doing their sound check or whatever. And there's just a bunch of students kind of hanging out in there. And the band is like fascinated by this. They're like, what are you guys doing here? What's going on? You organize this concert. That's cool. And so they're like talking to these kids and they're like, so what do you want to hear tonight? And this, this, one of the girls who was helping organize the show said funiculi funicula. And Jerry's like, what? That like little Italian ditty? And she's like, yeah, I would like to see you play that. And he was like, okay. And so they start like jamming it a little bit. And then they just kind of like laugh and move on. Well, (laughs) a week later on May 15th, 1977, they played it on stage during a show. And then later on that month in Pembroke Pines, Florida, they played it again. And that version appears on Dick's Picks Volume 3. So I think that they played this like, you know, a a few dozen times throughout their 77 to 95 history i think that that's a great story of just like a fan randomly saying something and then the band being like we could do that and and then bring it to the stage um 
But I do think that they recognize the speed bump effect that you were talking about. And that's why they went into this little beer barrel polka finiculi finicula jam at the end, because it's like, all right, we've been kind of waiting for a while now. Let's give the crowd something at least. As we said, from there, they go into Bertha, another set one opener. Throughout the Brent era, they played the song 106 times and 46 of those, it was the set one opener. So it, it was an opener throughout the 70s and it continued to be one during the Brent era. But Bertha itself, uh, the song, it, it's good. It starts with Jerry's guitar being super muffled. You can barely hear it, which leaves more room for Phil and Bob to take the foreground and they both sound excellent. And then Brent, the note that I have is triumphant. The way that he, it sounds triumphant, mm. the, what he's playing on the, on the keys for this song, uh, especially at the beginning. And at the end, <laughs> he sounds good all the way through with that kind of more traditional dead organ sound. Yeah. Uh, he's great at the organ. Yeah. Yeah. The, the point about Jerry's guitar being quiet, it's, it's hurt the most like around the four minute mark when the longer guitar solo starts. Cause like for the first 90 seconds of the solo, you can barely hear Jerry. And then some, someone must've realized that and like turned his volume up from one to 10. Cause then he roars in at the end and it's a, and it's good when they turn it up because all of a sudden Jerry just gets hot and just goes for it at the end of the solo. Yeah. Um, I wrote that down as the, the 348 mark that you can, yeah. it's like mid solo, like you said, that you can really start to hear him. And then at the five ish minute mark, you got the, you know, the throw me in the jailhouse guitar crunch, the crowd like roars in right there. And that was, that was really cool. Yeah. I listened to two different versions of versions of this show. I listened to a soundboard version and an audience version because I knew how many people were in the barn. It's the biggest show we've talked about by a considerable margin. And so I wanted to hear what it would sound like from the audience. And there are a few really big applause breaks. One is when his guitar gets loud. They go crazy. One is the exact moment that you just talked about. And the third, because of the weather, is ran into a rainstorm and the crowd goes crazy. Yeah. So a lot of big applause breaks throughout this this song. Can I just say real quick, I, I know he doesn't sound maybe as good as he did in 77 but i like this jerry with a little scratch a little baritone a little cocaine a little edge in his voice i kind of like it yeah i do too it grows on you too it's uh yeah it's it would be jarring if you heard like the especially that 69 show where he's like really yeah it was jarring to, to not listen to anything in between mm-hmm. like to listen to that and then dive into this it was like whoa yeah and there are songs where he sounds better than others the any more any more segment of this song i think is evidence that he's fighting his voice a little bit this show Mm -hmm. like he can't he can't give it the full gusto that he once did but at this point he's been working with this voice for a number of years now he knows kind of where he can push it and where he has to kind of ease up a little bit to get the most out of his voice and you know there are nights where it sounds better than others but i don't think this was a night where his voice sounds like terrible and i agree with you there no it's it's once you kind of get used to it and you accept it for what it is at this time that it's not the 70s or 60s version of his voice it does sound good it's um almost like endearing you know it's it goes back to i think that warts and all thing it's not just going to stop performing because his voice is a little bit different 
from Bertha, they go into Just a Little Light, which is a Brent song. Um, this is not my preferred Brent Midland song. It's one of his songs from from Built to Last. And it's really a synth and MIDI showcase, this entire song. It was only played uh, 21 times live. This was the second to last of those 21. The, the like mini solo break that happens in the four-minute mark... Brent has some really twinkly keys that sound really cool, but I don't know. I'm, I, I think this is a fine song. It's just, I'm not, I'm not crazy about it. What do you think? Yeah. I, his gritty gutty vocals were an interesting and melancholy pivot from like the happy upbeat Bertha. So like they, they really took a, a left turn. Um, but but I thought the way that Phil on the bass and Brent on the keys were like working together kind of throughout the song, I thought it was really, really well done. It was just strange because it didn't involve either Bob or Jerry, or like the, the two, you know, the main guys. So it was, it was different. It was strange, but I kind of liked it. It also kind of felt appropriate for the era. Mm-hmm. Like this felt like a song that came out in, you know, 87, 88, when you just like listen to the lyrics and the tone, um, like that kind of more melancholy classic rock. Mm-hmm. It, it felt, it felt right here in a 1990 show. I, it's interesting that Built to Last has a lot of Brent songs on it. It's the first time they kind of let him. Well, I don't know if they let him. I think that they actually, if you listen to interviews around that time, it seems like they kind of wanted him to maybe take more of a, you know, bigger position with the band. And he was a little bit more timid about it until 89. And then he had been in the band for a decade and had the confidence to have, I think, four songs on that album. The two, so there's this one, just a little light, but it this song feels to me like the polar opposite of We Can Run, which is my preferred Brent showcase song, I think, which is, it sounds very like We Are the World. Like it's all about, you know, saving the planet. And and then this one is, this one song, a note that I have is this song sounds deviant the same way a lot of Steely Dan does. It, mm. It's like got that kind of slinky sound. Um yeah. So from Just a Little Light, we go into Queen Jane Approximately, the first Dylan cover that we will get on this show. The song was introduced by The Dead when they started playing with Bob Dylan. So on the Dylan and The Dead tour, they started playing it. And then from that point on, from 87 to 95, they played it 100 times, more than 100 times. So it's a song that they really liked playing, and I totally get why. It sounds fantastic. Bob does his best other Bob impression and, and it, it works really well. It does. It's, it is a natural fit with the way that Bob sings and the way that the band plays uh, for this song. I really, really like the synth keys that Brent interspersed or sorry, that Brent interspersed. Oh, I guess I did say that right. Just, that's just a weird word <laughs> yeah. um, throughout this song. It's very minimalist the way that he uses it. He's kind of going back and forth, I think, between two keyboards. 
but it sounds really beautiful and it it adds i think a lot to the texture of the song yeah i you know knowing the bob dylan version i guess i didn't realize that this song was a keys showcase for brent and he he crushed it in this song yeah as much as there are songs throughout the night where Jerry is fighting with his voice, the vocal interplay between Bob and Jerry is really nice in this song. I think that the way that Jerry gets to use his voice on this song just like suits what he's doing in this era. And it sounds very heartfelt the way that he sings it, which is cool. The also, I mean, the the solos throughout this, this uh, song are just super energetic and fun. The specifically the interplay between Brent and Jerry when they have that kind of dueling solo segment around the four minute mark where it's like Brent has a cool solo and then Jerry builds off what he's doing and goes into his own whole thing. I wrote down highlight of the song, maybe of the set. Mm. It's, it's so great. The conversation between the two of them on stage and the way that they're working off each other. I think that there are many exemplifications of how well Brent furthered Jerry's playing and how well they work together. But this is one of the many. also sounds fantastic on on this song just kind of trotting along on his bass and uh it sounds really good what he's doing too this is the eighth best version on heady version if if you're into such things wow of more than 100 so Mm -hmm. the the people the people love it let's take a pause real quick because we've now talked about five shows and neither of us has mentioned the drummers a single time Mm, you're right so uh, this next song, Stagger Lee, is a, maybe a good example of why. On, this, on Stagger Lee, the drums are tough at a couple points in this song. Like in 69, we kept being like, man, these guys are so locked in with each other. This is awesome. That is not the case in Summer 90. There are times where they are really like not just not, just not together, like divergent almost. And it can sound kind of jarring. And then they find it at times. But then there are some other times where they have not found it. <laughs> yeah. What, what? I mean, can I get a, a sense for what you thought about the drums writ large when it comes to this show? Oh, writ large. I mean, even a little, little tease here. Even with our first formal drum space in the show, I, I don't know that I really noted noticed them at all i mean they were they were okay yeah yeah i think that's probably pretty accurate tough i mean i don't i don't think that this is like a particularly an era that's known for great drumming by the dead so i guess maybe we shouldn't have been surprised i also wonder maybe the mix is just different because the it's it's definitely noticeable the soundboard even from the soundboard from 1990 it's not as not as crisp as the Betty boards you can't hear everyone as clearly as you can from those beautiful Betty boards that we've 
gotten to listen to in the past. And uh, maybe it's a little bit harder for us to pick up on some of the cool things that they were doing. But yeah, I don't think this is a great show for the drummers in particular. And I think that this upcoming, the next song we're going to talk about, Staggerly, is an example of that. This is a song that we haven't talked about before. Um, it was off Shakedown Street, but this is just a true American folklore classic. Two versions of the lyrics were published in the Journal of American Folklore in 1911. And, I mean, a ton of early musicians played a version of this song. Ma Rainey with Louis Armstrong on the cornet, Mississippi John Hurt, Duke Ellington, Fats Domino, Lloyd Price, and then a lot of modern artists have recorded their versions of this story of Stagger Lee and Billy Lyons or Billy Delisle or, you know, whatever they call him. Uh, the Clash on London Calling have a song called Rongomboyo that makes Stagger Lee the hero of the song. Neil Diamond did a version. As you foretold when you and I were talking about this just the other day, Bob Dylan has a version on his 1993 uh, okay. studio album. The Black Keys have a version. Um, and, of course, The Dead have a version. So lots of uh, Stagger Lee within the popular culture uh really like a song and a story that has been within the american lexicon for over 100 years the dead's arrangement and the story that they're telling is unique and i really appreciate that the other stories like the version that i was initially familiar with i'm a huge fats domino fan and his version is a pretty true cover of the lloyd price version where it's just you know he basically he sees this murder and is like staggerly please don't hurt old me is the end of the song whereas this version that the dead play it's like a song about vengeance it's like this happened and then billy's wife delia goes out and gets vengeance mm-hmm. shoots him in the balls shoots staggerly in the balls as the story goes um it's cool it's a cool twist on a familiar story i like it yeah it's like a it's like an interesting sequel to the original yeah it is they played this song live 146 times. It was shelved briefly a couple times, um, once between 79 and 82. wonder maybe finding how Brent fit in with that song. Then they played it a few times in 82, put it back on the shelf until 85, but then it, it came back in and was a regular part of their live sets for the last decade of Grateful Dead music. There are no Bobby Cowboy songs in this show. I think this is as close as we get yeah and it's not even a bob song and so i think that he uses this song to do his like best cowboy twang on the guitar (laughs) his rhythm is very twangy and it sounds good um but it's just interesting that he uses this kind of outlaw gunslinger track to channel that cowboyness in his in his musical playing It's easy for me to see why this is a top version on Heady Version. I think it's a top 15 version. Uh, It's because Jerry's voice just gets better and better as the song goes on. The music is super tight. And um, that kind of gruffness that you were mentioning earlier to his voice at this time, it, it, it suits this song really, really well. And so I can totally see why, why the fans like this one a lot. And I think that your initial review when you told me about it was that you liked this one quite a bit too. Oh yeah. I just, I thought there was an excellent bluesy vibe. It kind of reminded me from the, it's a sin from the 69 show. We, we just talked about, um, like Jerry just, he just excels at the blues. Um, he just really had a good grasp on 
both you know how to hit it on guitar and then how to attack it vocally From Stagger Lee, we go into Cassidy. This is a song off of Bob Weir's Ace record. The 50-year anniversary of that is just around the corner. And um, Cassidy, I can't explain why, but I've never really liked this song. I was going to tease it as a hot take, but maybe it's not. Uncle Kyle is not a Cassidy guy. (laughs) I... Like, I don't know why I'm not. I don't know why I don't like this song, but I really never have. And um, I just don't know why. I feel kind of bad that I don't like it. I think it's a nice song. It's just not really my thing. This version, though, I mean, I think it's a, an interesting version. There is the drummers sound better um, during the especially the first minute of this song than they have for almost all of set one. And then there's a nice mid-song solo. It's not like, you know, hair-raising, but it's good. And then around the 320 mark, they turn into a dark tone. They, like, go on a on a real dark turn with this song, which is kind of cool. And it makes the end, which is more flowery, feel, like, extra jubilant now that you've gone through this darker turn, which is, again, a harbinger of things to come later in this show. So I, I thought it was an interesting version, but the other thing I will say about this song... I tolerate uh, Donna era Cassidy's way better than I do Brent era Cassidy's. Um, I think that their vocal harmonization, Donna and Bob, is much better suited to this song, in my opinion, than Brent and Bobby. What are your thoughts on Cassidy? Do you have anything? The guitar interplay here, it's kind of a tease into the next song too, but like Bob is crushing it on the rhythm and kind of pulling everyone else along and then jerry's keeping up with those solos like you talked about i just thought the two guitarists doing this were really good nice the next song is tennessee jed i think we've talked in the past about how this is not my favorite dead song (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) i'm no jed head however (laughs) here are my notes this is the entirety of my notes on tennessee jed longest song of set one dot 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 also among the strongest question mark and then the next note the second and final note is totally get the charm of this song as a barroom sing-along i mean for some reason i think part of what bothers me a little bit about this song is that like i've never been to tennessee i don't nothing against tennessee i'd like to go but i don't have any like love or admiration for tennessee because i've never been there and yet And I also feel like a lot of other people who have never been to Tennessee sing this song as though, you know, they're singing old Rocky Top or whatever because they are like a Tennessee born and bred person. (laughs) And I just, I don't know, it it just rings false to me, I guess, in that way. The other thing, I mean, I'll just be honest. The other thing that I don't like about this is Kellyanne Conway said that this is her favorite dead song and I find her to be a very distasteful person. And so I think that in my head, I also dislike it more knowing that she really likes it (laughs) (laughs) 
Is yeah. it fair? Maybe not. Is it reality? Yeah, yes. it is. Um, but putting her aside for just a sec, the interplay of what Bob and Jerry are doing, like the first 30 seconds, um, where, you know, Jerry's doing the little, the classic Tennessee lick, but then what Bob's doing on the rhythm, they're like, the amalgamation of what they're both doing is pushing the song a little more than than like a normal Jed um, and we talked a little before about how Jerry's voice wasn't so great at the beginning of the show this is his vocal highlight of the show he is crushing it in Tennessee Jed I don't disagree yeah I I listened to this version quite a few times in the days between because I did think it was quite good. It's not a particularly beloved version on Heady version. Most of the top ones are from like 77 and 78. Mm-hmm. But this might be a slept on version, honestly. I mean, I because again, I'm not a huge, I'm not a Jedhead. And I liked this version enough that I listened to it a few different times. And uh, the audience is, in, in the audience recording, is eating this up. They love it. The other thing that stood out to me about this song was the energy, like the energy on stage and the energy in the crowd. Like, for example, when they uh, do the play all day, rock all night part, like the crowd roar, it just felt good. It felt like, you know, this is an old timey, classic dead song and the crowd is like there for it. I mean, they are they are as pumped as we are to be here in some Jed what you're saying about the crowd's reaction to this song, I completely agree. And I think that that might be why I was more charmed by this song than I normally am. The other thing is one of my favorite things about this kind of like late period dead is Jerry gives back the energy that the crowd gives him a lot when it's, it's maybe, maybe he always did. And it's just more noticeable when his voice is a little bit rougher, but like he'll like really get up when the crowd goes crazy so an, a perfect example is the exact part that you just talked about. Uh, the sleep all day, rock all night. The crowd goes crazy. And then his next line, I think is the, you know, the Lord come and get you if you don't walk right. He like really lays it on thick for that line. And it's cool. It's, I like the way it sounds. Another example, one of my favorite shows from Hartford, from my home state, is in 87, one of their first shows back after uh, Jerry's Coma. There's a, um, it, they do a China rider and, um, the, I wish I was a headlight on a northbound train. He like belts it out and the crowd goes ballistic. And then the next time he goes like even louder. And so like stuff like that, like those moments, I just, I, I mean, inject them right into my veins. I love it. it. It's like, it's so cool to, um, you were saying this during let the good times roll about like kind of the you know, alchemy between the band and the fans and everyone involved being a part of this music. I love moments like that where you can really feel the crowd impacting the band. Mm-hmm. And I think that your analysis is perfect. I, I think that that really does kind of push this song ahead. That's the second to last song of set one. The very last is Music Never Stops. This is a chalk set one closer. 158 of the 200 times they played it, it ended set one. But Amazingly, it is only the fifth most common set closer of 1990, the number one being Promised Land. This song, it's a perfect, 
perfect transition from what you were just saying. The first time I heard the song was from the soundboard, and my first note on my thing is, not for me, give me late 70s versions all day, but Brent era, I'm just not as crazy about it. The second time I listened, I listened to the audience version, and I had forgotten that I wrote that note, and I made a note in my phone to write that this was my favorite song of set one. Whoa, okay. Complete change of pace because the audience is loving this song it's like the on the audience version you can hear the crowd singing the ooh ooh along with the band and in much the same way you were just talking about jed hearing the crowd like singing along how kind of with like a good old grateful dead song the same goes for this song like if you were just like a touchhead who only knew touch of gray and you were coming to this show just to like party and hope that you hear touch of gray there would be no reason for you to know that part of music never stopped. I don't think. And yet they are on it. And that was really cool. But I think that the other thing is I got too caught up in the singing because I, this is another song where I like the Donna era better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Same. But don't even worry about that. The music, the way that they're playing this song is so great. And, um, the solo in the middle is phenomenal the way that jerry dips in and out of midi at like the 315 mark i was talking about this earlier in this episode he like has the beginning of a, of a guitar solo switches into midi mode and has like a beautiful flute solo for about 45 seconds and then goes back to guitar and finishes it with like his regular guitar tone and it's just wild to me like the level of musical brilliance that one has to have to be able to go into like flute mode and have a long solo with a completely non-guitar sound and then go right back into electric guitar and finish it up. I, it just blows me away. And so I actually really, really liked this song despite my first response to it being negative. back half of the song 515 to the end everyone is firing on all cylinders like all bob bob is kind of holding it down jerry's doing his thing like you talked about brent sounds really good phil sounds really good and the drums also sound good in this little the the ending to set one yeah it's an excellent set one closer yep that's that that was my last note was like the last couple minutes of this song is like an absolute powerhouse set ender. I could not agree more. So set one, only three Jerry songs, which stands in stark contrast to the 69 show we just talked about, which was basically all Jerry songs. Yeah. Much longer tuning breaks than we're used to by 1990. Uh, makes sense. There's a little bit more complexity with their equipment and what they're doing, but musically the band is still sharp. And I do still think that this is a good set of grateful dead music and it's it's one that I enjoyed and it's one that I enjoyed more the more I listened to also 
I'm not sure how much I would go back and listen to the first three songs, just because, like I said, it feels like such a false start to me. But the ending two, especially, the Jed music never stopped, I would go back to down the road. Any any thoughts on set one as a whole before we move into the remainder? I agree with you, except I think you're not doing enough justice to the feels like a stranger. That in that three, that tripartite of openers, that that one is clearly above and beyond the other two. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So I'm gonna we're gonna try something new. I'm gonna try to share my screen with you. So set two begins with a uh, box of rain, but before that we have a the band telling the crowd to take a step back. If you have heard the band do that before, you're familiar with it. The most famous one has to be from Cornell. Right, right before Scarlet, right? I think so. So. I want to show you this because you and I were talking about this and you were like, ah, I wish they wouldn't have done that shtick right at the beginning of the second set. And I pushed back. I was like, I don't think this is a shtick. I think that this was the anti-Travis Scott. They didn't want fans to get crushed. So I'm going to play you this video of before the take a step back, right before it. Watch Jerry. This is so endearing to me. Oh, yeah. This definitely was not planned from that reaction oh absolutely not i'm gonna post a link to this video and i'll do it at like the right time in our show notes so that the fans can go and look at it but it's a very sweet moment of you know in this show with fifty-eight thousand people jerry's just looking into the crowd catches someone's eye and gives them a very sweet wave and then you can tell that he is seeing that the fans in the front are getting crushed and so he like runs over to bob and phil on the other side of the stage and starts telling them something and then Bob is like getting his guitar on. And so he runs back across the stage to Brent and says it to him. And then Brent begins the, okay, we're going to play a game called, we're going to try something called take a step back. And then Phil comes on and like really takes the lead on. One, two, three, everybody take a step back. Back again. One, two, two nine, three. eight, seven. Take a step back. Let's start in the back and move from the front. It's kind of cool the the like sound effect they put on it. It sounds like really echoey and trippy when he's doing it. I, I just think if you watch the video of this happening, it's just a very sweet and empathetic moment. It's kind of it is it's a good visceral reminder of you know Jerry just being an empathetic person, seeing people who are not having fun and <laughs> being like, "Let me, I can make this better um, by telling you to take a step back." This is the number eight take a step back on Heady version. <laughs> so, shout out to Heady version for tracking such a thing. From take a step back, Phil's already on the mic to tell the crowd to take a step back, and then they go right into a Phil Lesh masterpiece, Box of Rain. As I said, this is the reason why we picked this show in the first place. This song was, of course, on, it's the lead song, track number one on American Beauty, which was released in 1970. And then this song was shelved in 1973 and not brought back until 1986, an almost 800 show gap. After that point, though, they played it another 113 times before The Dead stopped playing, including the very last song The Grateful Dead ever played in 1995 was Box Mm. of Rain. Of those 113 times, Post 86, 
um, 38 times it was the set to opener. So this is where they played it a lot. I think that they kind of let Phil sing early and then kind of moved it along. I, as I said, love this version. I think this is my favorite version outside of American Beauty. The fans do not agree. It is not a top 20 version on Heady version. It's not, you know, acclaimed. But I really love it. I think his voice sounds really good. And I think that the band sounds good. And we have yet another moment where there's a rain lyric that gets a huge applause. Like rain that's fallen from a heavy sky gets a, an uproarious applause break. So fitting for the rainy night and um, just a really good song. I think this is a beautiful song and a nice way to start what would quickly become a very, very good dark second set <laughs> what do you want me to do to watch for you while you're sleeping well please don't be surprised when you find Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful song. It reminds me of Morning Dew. Like it's it's like pleasant but also deeply sad and and moving. Like beautifully melancholy is how I would describe this song. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, it was written it was written while Phil's dad was dying and so he had written the music and then given it over to Bob Hunter and basically said, what do you got for lyrics? And according to Bob Hunter, it was like a creative flash where he just, the lyrics came pouring out of him. He listened to the music twice, and by the end of the two go-throughs, go he had written the entire song. And um, wow, he said that he didn't realize that this is what he was doing, but when, once he read the lyrics, he was like, I definitely wrote this song from the perspective of a son who was watching his father die and like wanted to make it a little bit easier. So really beautiful song. I've heard both Phil and Bob say that when they visit people in hospice care or in hospitals, which is apparently something both of them do quite a bit or did quite a bit, I guess, before COVID, this is a song that people ask them to play a lot. Hmm. This song in Ripple, apparently. As I said, we're about to take a dark turn in set two. From Box of Rain, we go into Victim or the Crime. Now... This is a very controversial song in the Grateful Dead lore. I'm going to include two different articles in the show notes about this song. The first is from the co-writer of this song, Garrett Graham. So this is not a Weir Barlow song. This is a Weir Graham song. And (laughs) Garrett Graham describes the song as filled with, quote, sheer giddy direness. I think that that's true of many Grateful Dead songs. You were just talking about Morning Dew. I think that that it's not giddy, but you might talk about that touch of gray. There's some giddy direness to that song. And obviously direwolf. <laughs> That's, uh, I mean, not only is dire in the title, but yeah, they're gleefully singing. Don't murder me. That's pretty giddy and dire. A lot of what he says is that he, so a lot of the controversy of this song was spurred on by John Perry Barlow 
who basically led a crusade to get the dead to stop playing the song. And his opinion was that singing the song with the word junkie in the very first lyric is deeply offensive when you have Jerry, among other drug addicts, <laughs> on stage. And so he took exception to that. And Garrett Graham, the argument that he makes is, I think he was basically jealous that I had written this song with Bob and he didn't have a part in it. And so he got kind of salty about it. But here's here's a, an informative part of what he says. Quote, I was catching grief with both hands. Feeling the heat, I started to cave. Who was I to presume upon the Grateful Dead? So I went to Weir and suggested we throw water on the fire by changing the lyric from junkie to flunky or luckless or jerk off or whatnot. But he wasn't having it. To his credit, he'd been singing this song for four or five years by then and liked it just the way it was. He says that because this song, I think it was originally a Bobby and the Midnights or Kingfish song. Back to the quote. He did finally broach the subject with Garcia and Jerry said, quote, I don't give a fuck. Sing what you want. Quote, how predictable is that? <laughs> so I think that's a great quote. Jerry apparently wasn't very bothered by it. My Jerry quote on this is from an interview with Bonnie Simmons in September 1989. It's talking about the first time he heard Bob Weir play victim or the crime. So I think the first time Weir showed it to me was when we were playing with Joan Baez at an AIDS thing in the city. It's fascinating because it defies any effort to play freely through it. You have to know it. It's that simple. It has changes in it, and they're very strict, and they have lots of real dissonant moments. So the angularity of it was fascinating to me. The tonality was, because it's one of those things where you really have to stretch to figure out something appropriate to play to add to the tonal mood of the tune. So I think Jerry liked it, based on those two quotes. He liked yeah. getting weird with it. Definitely. I mean, neither Jerry Garcia nor anyone in the Grateful Dead was generally scared off by a weird song. They were all for it. And if you don't think so, listen to the drums in space from this concert. <laughs> 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 and uh, that's proof positive uh, that they were down with the weirdness. Yeah. So I, I think that the reason why we both thought, felt it was interesting to read those quotes is because this song got a lot of heat. As Garrett Graham said, he was catching grief with both hands. People didn't really like this song. Now, to be fair to the deadheads who didn't like this song, I saw a few reviews where people were on forums and on Reddit saying, like, why did people hate this song? And one of the answers was, it's a weird song that's hard to dance to. And fair enough. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're going to a show looking to have a good time and, you know, dance and groove, and then this song comes on, it would be hard to dance to. And I get that. Also, you know, who knows what personal struggles people are going with. Maybe they don't want to get confronted with the word junkie in a song at a concert. And that's valid, too. Many valid opinions to be had about this song. But I, I don't think that the idea that Jerry hated it is true. I think that he enjoyed playing it. And uh, he enjoyed playing it this night because this song actually is a very good version of this. This mm -hmm. is the number two version on Hetty version of Victim or the Crime. People really liked it. And it's a weird sounding song. You can hear Mickey on the beam, like beam galore in the opening minute of this song. He's going ham on it. And um, it makes for just a really trippy sound. And the beginning of what is like a deeply, deeply psychedelic portion of this show, beginning with Victim or the Crime. What else did you think about uh, this song on your listen? Just that 
maybe kind of hindsight 2020, but knowing the quote that I had of Jerry and hearing him like embrace the darkness and embrace kind of the changes, like Jerry's not driving this song, but he like rides along with it really well. Like he's talking about the angularity in both those quotes and like he's turning with it. And it was just, it was cool to hear. And yeah, it's, it's about to get dark. Right. Brent does the same thing. Uh, he's really kind of riding the wave with this song. And this is the beginning of his piano sound that I would describe as, I, I don't know where this is coming from, but spidery. It sounds like, mm. like creeping spiders. A lot of what he's doing on the piano in the second set of this show. It's like the way that he's playing it, it sounds sharp. It sounds like a, Ah, it just it's sharp and frightening sounding <laughs> um so we go from there into another um built to last song foolish heart when the opening notes of this song first hit you it sounds like you're coming out of a dark wood from the song that just came before it i really really love this as a post-victim pairing this is not the order that they appear on on the album, but it's it really works together. Victim of the Crime into Foolish Heart. This was the top pairing for Foolish Heart. It, they played it 87 times. About 20 of those were with Victim before it. And um, I can see why it, it, it makes sense in some way. Foolish Heart's a cool song. It was the first song on uh, Built to Last. And there's a great interview with Jerry that you can find on the Internet Archive where he talks about this. And he says that he he likes that there are no chords in the song. It's all lines, according to him. He said that the intro line that Bob plays that gets you into the song is he's always really loved. And he thought that there was like a really creative turn by Bob and that everything that Phil does on this song, he said that he thinks is basically just musical brilliance. And I agree with that, what they're doing throughout this version it's great and this is a, a version of the song that i really liked and this is a song that i really like as far as like late late period hunter garcia songs i think that this one is at or near the top it's just a really nice song and um a unique one with the way that it's constructed as jerry was saying i think that part of his solo jerry's solo on this song almost sounds like a franklin's tower lick it's kind of cool and then the last 45 seconds of the song feels like a light teasing of dark star in a lot of ways. Um, what did you think about this song? I don't have too much to add other than the last minute. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's like the calm before the scary storm. And then it's an excellent transition from sounding like dark star into a dark, dark star. Yeah. I wrote down the same thing. I, one of my notes is I adore the way they bring the tempo and the vibe all the way down and then they just let the music melt into Dark Star. It's a truly gorgeous transition. huge applause moments this is the biggest if you listen to the audience version especially 
the audience goes fucking ballistic for like 20 <laughs> seconds when this song starts. They are like beside themselves to be hearing Dark Star. A good reason being this is only the seventh time they played this song after it made its triumphant return in 1989. Um, it's the ninth and final Brent Darkstar. So in a decade of him being in the band, this was only the ninth time they had played it. And it's the only time it was let in by Foolish Heart, which is kind of a shame because it, it sounds great. It pairs so well, yeah. Yeah. Um, as you said, it is dark. This is a 24 minute dark star that starts out as a, you know, somewhat ordinary dark star, just with more MIDI tones. The way that Jerry is dipping in and out of that MIDI flute tone, especially in like the first three minutes, he'll like go to it for like a line and then back to his guitar and then back to MIDI and then back to his guitar. And it's really wild sounding and cool. And then later, either him or Bob has like a steel drum sound that they're working with, with their MIDI synth, which is really weird, but also kind of cool. Um, but the, the main thing is that this is just like, just dark, noisy. And I, I don't mean like loud. I mean like noise. Like there's like a lot of noise going on in this song. And there's a part in the middle of this song that gets about as dark and scary as you'll hear a dark star get. Brent's keys, my note is, sound like creepy crawly spiders. <laughs> I, that's the only way I can think to describe it. It's, it's spooky. I mean, this is like a horror movie soundtrack from the 12 minute mark to the end of the song. So the last half, <laughs> like it's, yeah, it's it's putting the dark in Dark Star, which isn't really bad. Like it's, it's not bad, but if you were on acid on the sh- in the show you are like losing oh it. no yeah <laughs> yeah i i was thinking about all those people who were like this is the best acid i ever had in the comments when this part of the show comes on and it's like it would feel like this band is actively tormenting you <laughs> <laughs> and especially because you can see the video of this show on or this part of the show rather on youtube and the visuals that they were playing on the screens are wild they are just crazy and so i don't even know how they did this stuff with the visuals that they had on the screens but it's it's out there and so if you were in the audience whoo yeah it's crazy this is a i know that like um a, a big thing with the late period dark stars is how does jerry's voice sound and people having an issue with his voice not sounding great and it doesn't sound great for this song it's not the high point of his singing on this show, but I, I would say if I were going to recommend this song, I would say like, don't let that ruin an otherwise interesting version of, of a, you know, a deadhead favorite. There is a section in the middle that sounds to me like free associative jazz. It's just noise and weirdness and like not even notes sometimes just like sounds. Yeah. And it's real deep but then they work their way out of it into the second verse, which is cool. And yeah, overall, I think this is a, a, a fine version of Dark Star. I enjoyed listening to it and listened to it many times in many different contexts so that I could kind of get a good sense for what they were doing. And um, and my, my overall thought is that it's quite enjoyable. 
Uh, from here, we go into drums and space. This is our first drum space on Working Man's Pod. You and I have a little differing opinions about drums and space in person. I think it's extremely captivating in person. And I, I think drums is worth the price of admission in person. Drums is so cool to see. Yeah. Space, meh. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I'm saying. I, I'm a fan. I like it. I think it's cool to see them just go into the musical wilderness and see what they come out with. Um, it's interesting. This, uh, this drum space is more space heavy than drums. The drums part, I think it's about seven or eight minutes long, something like that. Um, it's like in that range. Of, it's 20, a 26-minute drum space. It's kind of hard to delineate when drums ends and space begins, though, because the drummers leave the stage at some point, but then Love continues on with a drum machine and just other electronic sounds for a few minutes before the rest of the band comes back on. And so there's like a weird electronic sound for like a good two minutes of this when it's like bridging the gap between drums and space, which is cool. It's interesting to get his musical sensibility and his musical style added into the drum space segment because this is our first formal drums space there i got a quote from a newspaper article and i don't know when this article is from but it was posted as a picture by the great twitter follow fate music jg Um, give him a follow on twitter it'll brighten your day and the quote comes in with the drums and space segment of freeform percussion and electric noodling are reviled even by some fans. Quote, that's something we do for fun, Garcia says. We're going to keep on doing it to have a part of the show absolutely unstructured and not attached to anything. If people don't like it, so what? There are times I hate it too. <laughs> there are times when it goes nowhere. But I don't care. That's not the point. The point is that it doesn't have a point, end quote. (laughs) And that, I mean, that's drums in space in a paragraph nutshell. (laughs) That's phenomenal. There are times I hate it too. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I'm not saying I don't understand why people would not like it as much. The other thing is drum space does not, it doesn't perform as well in your headphones when you're walking around as it does when you're in the show in that you know, mind meld state with all the fans around you where you're all feeling the same thing and you are watching these musicians make this sound live. It means something different in that context and it feels different. The emotion of it is different when you're physically there and it's visceral Mm -hmm. compared to hearing it on the tape. I will say though, I, when I listen to Gravel Dead shows, I don't usually skip drums and any songs, but I also don't usually skip drums in space with the exception of Sometimes I will fast forward until there's like two minutes left in space if I've like had enough of it basically because it, again it doesn't hold up necessarily as well on the re-listen it you can't really like for example when I listen to Dead and Company shows I if I hadn't been there I would never know that O'Teal is on the stage playing as like a third drummer with them no but when you watch that it's so cool it is and it's it's great and the stuff that they're doing with drums in space now in 2022 is really wild you know, uh, it's, that's actually something that was kind of interesting to me about this drum space is this even is more evolved than some of the early eighties drum spaces that I've heard where like, you know, with the incorporation of electronic sound. And even then it feels tame compared to a lot of the stuff they're doing now 
with incorporating some real weird stuff like rainforest sounds and like uh, the Bristow show that you like. They have like rubber ducky sounds uh, in the background during the drums space. So they, they've like continued to evolve that in the years since the Grateful Dead, which I think is really cool and admirable. You know, they know a lot of people don't like it and they still, like Jerry said, sometimes we hate it too, but the point they're is gonna, that there is no point. We, they're going to do like it doing anyway, it. right? <laughs> um, so yeah, drum space taking a page from the dark star before it gets creepy spooky and dark as hell oh my god um there are parts where jerry and bob are using like screechy tones and it sounds like they're just like smacking their guitars almost (laughs) like not even like strumming it or picking they're just like hitting their guitar um and it's it's really wild sounding and really scary and again if you were tripping at this show it would feel like there was an adversarial relationship between what the band is doing and what they are trying to get out of your mental state um, with this song. At the very end, we get some really cool midi-fied sounds over Brent playing what I can only describe as a haunted house organ. Like the organ sounds that he's playing at the very end of this song, it could be playing in a haunted house. Uh, And I mean that in a good way. Next song coming out of Drums in Space. Um, If there were people looking for an escape after Drums in Space. Sorry. Not quite getting it. And (laughs) I feel like the band knows that because they play all along the Watchtower, a Bob Dylan cover, in which the very first line is, there must be some kind of way out of here. They were probably reading a lot of fans' minds (laughs) who were freaking out, Mm, wanting to get out of there. But there's no escape. You're in for the journey, and you just got to trust that the band is going to bring it back to a happier point and send you out on a good note later on. All along the Watchtower, they they go into it with a real long, spacey intro, which is fitting, coming out of this dense 50-minute Dark Star drum space jam that could come before. You know, I feel like they played this version well. The big ding, the big knock I would have against it is the end is super abrupt. I don't think that it stands up to the following week's version that was on Dave's Picks 40, I think is is better than this one to me. But yeah, I, I wouldn't put the I wouldn't say that this is a heady version. I'd say it's a fine version. It was kinda nice that Shredder Jerry from the sixties came back for a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I thought I thought we were gonna go into something kind of pleasant after the that fifty minutes of of sounds and uncomfortable feelings. And then all along the watchtower, I was like, okay, they'll come out of this hot. And and they came out of it like still dark. And I was like, well, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. This is the classic Jerry ballad slot. You expecting like Stella right. blue or yeah. the wheel or something like that, where they're going to give you something, like you said, more pleasant to kind of bring you out of the dark moment of your trip and back to earth. Nope. But they did yeah. not. Um, the next song is uh, Dear Mr. Fantasy into, well, it's like a Dear Mr. Fantasy Hey Jude mashup that they did a lot in the Brent era. This is the last time for Hey Jude, and they only did one more Mr. Fantasy after this one. I actually really like this song quite a bit, but this version is not my favorite. And the reason why is really kind of weird, but the Make It Snappy there are some versions where Brent like screams snappy, like screeches it. And it's 
I love it so much. It's so weird, but I, I really love the way it sounds. Um, and he doesn't quite do that. I think that uh, he doesn't have maybe the energy that he once did at this point in his life. Um, and it leads to, because, you know, this is a Brent song. He's probably the one who's kind of setting the pace. The middle section is especially subdued. They're really kind of mellow, mellow, mellow for that middle section. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, this is not my favorite version, uh, although it's very beloved on on Heady version. I think it's the number four version of this Dear Mr. Fantasy, Hey Jude mashup. And it is kind of cool. Um, a cool, as far as like dead covers go, you know, you have all on the watchtower, then dear Mr. Fantasy and Hey Jude. It's like we're on classic rock radio with the dead in the post space <laughs> section sector. But overall I do like dear Mr. Fantasy. I'm glad that we got one now on, on our show. What, mm-hmm. what was your thought? I was a little higher on this than you were. I, it was like a great dark and foreboding rendition until about the four thirty mark. And then. I think somebody like turned up Bob's rhythm audio because at the 4:30 mark you can hear him and Brent like crushing it back and forth together, and then the overlap and the transition that they do in this version, I I just thought were were really cool. Um, the overlap with like when Brent is singing "Dear Mr. Fantasy" and the other guys are doing the "La La 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 La." Exactly. Yep. Yeah, I like that um, a lot too. That that like little overlap part i think that that might have been the highlight of set 2 for me That, the way that they were interplaying that back and forth and like the the Hey Jude here, you talked about how Foolish Heart was like when you come out of the dark woods. The Hey Jude into the touch of gray, that was like coming out of a dark movie theater. Like it was pitch black and oh God, there's the sun. Like <laughs> here, here we go. Finally, something to smile about. Couldn't agree more. My last note on this song is the last minute of playing is really excellent and the beginning of the resuscitation <laughs> and yeah. a great lead in to touch of gray, which is how yeah. they, they closed out set to all of the touch heads who were at the show went home happy. They got to hear the song. They went out to hear all of the mm-hmm. fans who were tripping went home happy because touch of gray brought them back to life. Everyone who's <laughs> listening to the show now, like you and I are happy because this is a great version of touch of gray. Yeah. Uh, it's not a super common show closer. They played the song 150 times live and only 10 were set to closers. So not mm. a common slot for this. Actually far more common than they would open shows with it. And mm-hmm. so it's interesting to get it at the very end, but it's perfectly fitting. Well, that's our relationship with this song is that we saw it as the, I think for both of us, the first live music song out of the pandemic. Yeah. We saw a touch of gray. Yeah. And I mean, that is a live music moment I will never forget is yeah. after, you know, the darkness of COVID scary times in life being in a packed house and screaming, we will get by with uh, <laughs> 15,000 fellow deadheads was a, yeah. a truly wonderful moment. And the crowd here is just as excited as we were. 
they go bananas for this song. <laughs> and um, it feels like the moment where the band fully brings the crowd out of the dark and back into the light um, where they're full. They're finally like, all right, here you go. <laughs> You've gone on this journey with us. We've done enough to you here. Here you go. Let's throw you a bone. And um, yeah, it's a great version. This is a top 25 version on, on heady version. If anything, I think it's a little bit underrated. It's an excellent version. And I think that especially Phil and Jerry stand out with how well they play on this song. The bass always makes or breaks the song and here we are making it baby because <laughs> phil sounds really good it's it's uh this is a good show for phil in general not that he has many bad shows he's an he's an amazing bassist but i don't think we've said one negative thing about phil in any of our recordings <laughs> <laughs> there's not much negative to say about no there's the man, not he's honestly. great yeah but yeah he stands out in this song he's he's really killing it and Jerry too, the the solo that he has is awesome. And um, the we will get by at the end of the song, as I was saying, when we saw it, a beautiful moment. When this crowd saw it, great moment. And they eat it up. They love it. They go nuts. Great way to end set two is uh, with Touch of Grey and everyone singing we will get by. And really, like I said, just a great way to bring the crowd back into the light after, I mean an extended period of darkness over, I mean, what, like almost an hour and a half. If you go back to victim of the crime, or even if you go back to, I mean, box of rain, although a beautiful song, if you know what it means, it could have some darkness. And then you go from that all the way coming, coming around to a touch of gray, little encore break. And then we get a great encore song, uh, bringing it full circle from where they began. Everyone takes turns on singing the weight. Go ahead. No, just on that note, there's a, a good bit of chiasmus with like the let the good times roll opener where everybody gets to contribute and here everyone gets to contribute and everyone gets to send the crowd off into the night. Yeah, absolutely. This was only the fifth time that the dead had played this song. They debuted it in March of 1990. This version is really true to the band's album cut and I'm not mad at that at all. I really love the tempo that they play it with. I think it sounds great. There's a little lyrical flub from Jerry in verse one, but I mean, it doesn't really take much away from the song. Every individual singer sounds good in what they're doing here. And it makes for just a really nice way to send the crowd home. Also a precursor to a few weeks later, the final night in Chicago, this was the encore and the last song Brent would play with the band. I mean, touchingly or sadly, making his last lyric that he sung with the band, I've got to go, but my friends can stick around. Wow. Yeah. And and we're not going to end on a more fitting note than that. We bid <laughs> yeah. you good night. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Dave. We've got we've to put a bow on this, baby. Come on. <laughs> Set two is an absolute journey. It's not for everyone. I get that. I'm, I'm sure there are some people who really don't like it at all. It's very, very dark. It's very weird it's it's scary like legitimately if you listen to the grateful dead to be happy which i think a lot of people do this is a weird deviation and that it's a little scary it's true and it makes it an interesting listen to use our friend jim in maryland's vernacular regardless of whether it's worthy it is absolutely worth it to listen to uh this show because it's a good one Mm -hmm. i liked this show the more i listened to it 
the more I kind of got into the summer 90 groove and the way that everyone was sounding at this time, the more that I kind of sat with it, the more I really liked it and thought that what the band is doing is, is really good. I think especially the electronics, the synthesizers and the MIDI sound that they're working with, it can be really jarring when you first hear it and a little bit uh, tough to swallow. But the more you, you know, kind of let let it happen, the more you get comfortable with it, the better it sounds. So I'm glad that I listened to this a bunch of times. And I'm really glad that I listened to the audience tape. It's cool to hear what the audience was sounding like um, at a massive show with almost 60,000 people in the barn. On that point, you know, I said what their gross was and how many tickets they sold. The place where I got that information is from Grateful Seconds, a friend of the show who is going to be appearing on an episode within the next month or so. He runs an, a fantastic website, gratefulseconds.com, and it's just a, a great resource. There's so much on there. So if you're looking for information, check him out. Uh, someone that he works closely with is Lost Live Dead. So lostlivedead.blogspot.com also has a great website. They're buds, uh, Corey and David. And on Lost Live Dead, there are some really great deep dives on kind of odd topics with the dead. One that I read a long story about was the Grateful Dead in North Carolina over the years, like all of the shows that they played there. And, you know, as someone who lives in North Carolina now as a transplant, it was kind of cool to read about the history of the dead here in the Tar Heel State. So just a couple shout outs to some, you know, people who we were in touch with and we've been, you know, using their resources uh, to make sure that we're putting a good show out for you all um, in the in the episodes between. Dave, what else do you have? This is uh, the longest episode we've recorded so far. What are some you got any final thoughts, final questions? You know, what songs, what song would you take onto your imaginary podcast and and i do want to caution uh, imaginary it, playlist it, what did i say podcast <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh yes playlist um but i want to caveat that it, it cannot be one of the covers that we heard okay well that's fine because the two that i would have the two that i would be between would be two songs that were back to back um Box of Rain, which is what turned me on to this show in the first place, and music never stopped because that weird flute MIDI solo in the middle is really cool, and I like it quite a bit, but I'm going with Box of Rain. It's the reason why I wanted to do this show in the first place. I don't know of a ton of live versions that I really love of that song, and so now that I've found one, I'm taking it with me. Give me Box of Rain. What about you? I'll give an honorable mention to the Mr. Fantasy Hey Jude because... I just thought it was really good, but I, I was between the Tennessee Jet and the Feel Like a Stranger. I, th- I just thought that Feel Like a Stranger was really good, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick that from the lighter, happier, not scary set one. But also a shout out to the Touch of Gray for putting a smile on our faces to end the show. Absolutely. So last couple of things, uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, we are at Working Man's Pod. Instagram, at Working Man's underscore pod. If you're wondering what our next episode is going to be, well, our next episode is going to come out on April 5th, 2022. And that is the just about 50th anniversary of the first show of the Europe 72 tour. 
And so we're going to talk about that show, the show The Dead played on April 7th, 1972 at Wembley Empire Pool in London, um, basically 50 years ago that day. So we're going to talk about that show. That show is widely available on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you listen to music streaming. So that is what we are going to talk about for our next one. We're going to go back to the 70s and listen to some some Europe 72. This is a month into us uh, having put this show out. And so far, the feedback and the response from the community has really blown us away. So thank you all for that. Thank you for listening. On that note, we will bid you good night. Good night. And I bid you good night. Good night. Good night. That's it. That's it. You got it.